We'll start with a question. Which is the biggest danger for the church? Is it being persecuted? Or is it being left alone? Is it being under attack? It's the greatest danger. Or is it being tranquil and undisturbed? And we could go on to ask not only which of those is the biggest danger for the church as a whole, but which is the biggest danger for you and me as individuals? And the answer to the question is, it's hard to say. They both present different kinds of danger. But you and I, I think, don't tend to see it that way. We do not tend to think that undisturbed tranquility presents any danger. Surely that can only be a good thing. It certainly can be a good thing. And given the choice, we would be mad to say, I'd prefer to be persecuted. But still, the Bible tells us times of difficulty and times of tranquility both present serious dangers for God's people. And the passage we're going to look at gives us an illustration of that. It's a passage about two kinds of danger. We're going to be reading two chapters of 2 Kings. And we could sum up the first chapter with the word crisis. And the second chapter with the word calm. I think this is helpful for us as we think about our own times of crisis and calm. So if you turn first to 2 Kings chapter 11, which is in page 380 in the green church Bibles and page 585 in the larger print. We're going to read from there in a moment, but before that let's remember what has been going on in the history of Israel and Judah. Last week, we saw a bloodbath in the northern kingdom. There's really no other word for it. Jehu systematically worked his way across the north, leaving behind him a trail of blood and bodies and piles of heads. If you weren't here last week, you can find all of that in chapters 9 and 10 of Two Kings. And the key point behind all of it was that Jehu's sword was God's sword of judgment. Jehu himself may not have been an exemplary character, but he was God's instrument of judgment at this time. Years before Jehu came along, Queen Jezebel and King Ahab had led Israel into an era of Baal worship. And while they were bringing in Baal, they were at the same time trying to erase the Lord and his people from Israel. And God announced he was not going to ignore that evil. He said he would bring judgment by destroying Ahab's house, meaning Ahab's family. His family who carried on what Ahab and Jezebel had started. And our passage last week left us in no doubt God delivered on that promise of judgment through Jehu. At the end of it all, God said to Jehu, you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do. Now all that took place in the northern kingdom, 
things in the southern kingdom of Judah, they're a little bit different. Because God had not announced that judgment was coming on Judah. And the reason was, roughly 150 years before this, God had promised King David that David's house would endure. One of David's descendants would turn out to be an eternal king. God has promised to preserve David's line until that eternal king arrives. And so the kingship in Judah is not going to pass through lots of different families the way it has been in the north. But that does not mean the kingdom of Judah is a paradise of true worship. At this time in history, it's not at all like that. In fact, Baal worship has come down from the north to infect Judah in the south. That happened when David's descendant, Jehoram, king of Judah, married Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. That royal marriage was not good for Judah. If you think Prince Harry marrying an American is bad, this was much, much worse. Through Athaliah, Baal worship got a foothold in the kingdom of Judah. When Athaliah's husband Jehoram died, their son Ahaziah became king in Judah. Ahaziah became pally with Ahab's family up in the north. He became so pally, in fact, that he was killed up north during Jehu's time of judgment. And as we pick up this morning in chapter 11, beginning of chapter 11, we're dropping into Judah in the aftermath of all this. So we'll read from chapter 11, verse 1, through to the end of chapter 12. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram and sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Athaliah so he was not killed. He remained hidden with his nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent for the commanders of units of a hundred, the Karaites and the guards, and had them brought to him at the temple of the Lord. He made a covenant with them and put them under oath at the temple of the Lord. Then he showed them the king's son. He commanded them, saying, This is what you're to do. You who are in the three companies that are going on duty on the Sabbath, a third of you guarding the royal palace, a third at the surrogate, and a third at the gate behind the guard, who take turns guarding the temple, and you who are in the other two companies that normally go off Sabbath duty, are all to guard the temple for the king. Station yourselves round the king, each of you with weapon in hand. Anyone who approaches your ranks is to be put to death. Stay close to the king wherever he goes. Commanders of units of a hundred did just as Jehoiada the priest ordered. Each one took his men, those who were going on duty on the Sabbath and those who were going off duty, and came to Jehoiada the priest. Then he gave the commanders the spears and shields that had belonged to King David and that were in the temple of the Lord. The guards, each with weapon in hand, stationed themselves round the king, near the altar and the temple, from the south side to the north side of the temple. 
Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put a crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him. And the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise made by the guards and the people, she went to the people at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king standing by the pillar as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Then Athaliah tore her robes and called out, Treason! Treason! Jehoiada the priest ordered the commanders of units of a hundred who were in charge of the troops, Bring her out between the ranks and put to the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest had said, She must not be put to death in the temple of the Lord. So they seized her as she reached the place where the horses enter the palace grounds, and there she was put to death. Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they would be the Lord's people. He also made a covenant between the king and the people. All the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and idols to pieces and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. Then Jehoiada the priest posted guards at the temple of the Lord. He took with him the commanders of hundreds, the Karites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and together they brought the king down from the temple of the Lord and went into the palace, entering by way of the gate of the guards. The king then took his place on the royal throne. All the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was calm, because Athaliah had been slain with a sword at the palace. Joash was seven years old when he began his reign. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, All the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Joash said to the priest, Collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord. The money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. Let every priest receive the money from one of the treasures, then use it, to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. But by the 23rd year of King Joash, the priests still had not repaired the temple. Therefore, King Joash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and asked them, why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from your treasures, but hand it over for repairing the temple. The priests agreed that they would not collect any more money from the people and that they would not repair the temple themselves. Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid. He placed it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the temple of the Lord. The priests who guarded the entrance put into the chest all the money that was brought to the temple of the Lord. Whenever they saw that there was a large amount of money in the chest, the royal secretary and the high priest came counted the money that had been brought into the temple of the Lord and put it into bags. When the amount had been determined, they gave the money to the men appointed to supervise the work in the temple. With it, they paid those who worked on the temple of the Lord, the carpenters and builders, the masons and stonecutters. They purchased timber 
and blocks of dress, stone for the repair of the temple of the Lord, and met all the other expenses of restoring the temple. The money brought into the temple was not spent for making silver basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, or any other articles of gold or silver for the temple of the Lord. It was paid to the workers who used it to repair the temple. They did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. The money from the guilt offerings and sin offerings was not brought into the temple of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. About this time, Hazael, king of Aram, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. But King Joash of Judah took all the sacred objects dedicated by his predecessors, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace, and he sent them to Hazael, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. As for the other events of the reign of Joash and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? His officials conspired against him and assassinated him at Beth Milo on the road down to Silla. The officials who murdered him were Jehozabad, son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, son of Shomer. He died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. This is God's word. And we said earlier we could sum up these two chapters using two words, crisis and calm. So let's start with a crisis. Athaliah is Ahab's daughter. Now I realize there are lots of names here. It can get confusing sometimes. But there are only two or three names that we really need to worry about today. And Athaliah is one of them. She's Ahab's daughter. She came down to Judah and married into the family of David's descendants. But now her husband and her eldest son are dead. And this lady seems to have her heart set on preventing the fulfillment of God's promises to David. I don't know what else can explain her efforts to destroy the whole royal family in Judah. But chapter 11, verse 1 tells us that is what she tries to do. And of course, that means killing our own children and grandchildren. It's totally mad. But she's the queen mother, and so apparently she has the power to do mad things like this. Before any opposition can get organized, she takes the opportunity to wipe out all of the males who have royal blood in Judah. This is a crisis for the palace. And it's a crisis for God's plan of salvation for the world. If Athaliah succeeds, then David has no descendants left. And the New Testament would never have started with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. As Ahaziah goes as Athaliah goes on the rampage, God's promises are hanging by a thread. 
But what turns out to happen is that in this crisis, amazing things take place. This is a time when we would expect everyone to either run or jump on the bandwagon with Athaliah. But in the midst of that, one woman shows amazing courage. Look again at chapter 11, verse 2. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram and sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide them from Athaliah so he was not killed. Jehoshaphat saves her nephew Joash. It's a great thing. But the situation is still precarious. For six years, we're told, Athaliah rules in Judah. For those six years, God's promises are hanging by the slenderest of threads. Joash was a newborn when Jehoshaphat saved him. And for six years, she manages somehow to keep him hidden. God's promises depend on this fragile little child staying alive. And it's not the only time that has happened. We've already referred to the first verse of the New Testament. Well, the second chapter of the New Testament tells us how King Herod tried to destroy Jesus, the descendant of David. When Jesus was still tiny, Herod, in jealousy, ordered that all the boys in the area should be killed. He wanted to extinguish any rival to his own rule as king. And by a thread, Jesus' parents escaped to Egypt and he was saved. I say it was by a thread, and that is how it looks from our perspective. But God has done this kind of thing often enough for us to know his plans are well capable of surviving even the very worst crisis. And he's capable of doing great things through his people, even in the worst crisis. Here in our passage, Jehoshaphat has shown great courage to hide Joash. But that's only the start of it. Yes, she's preserved this baby from the initial danger, but the danger hasn't gone away. At any time, Joash could be discovered and killed. Just because he's alive doesn't mean the crisis is over. And what we find is, as we read on, on top of her initial courage, Jehoshaphat shows a whole lot of shrewdness in this situation. When you have a Baal-worshipping ruler in charge... Where's the best place to hide a baby? Well, how about the temple of the Lord? Why would a Baal worshiper ever go in there? And so for six years, that is where Joash lives. And then Jehoshaphat's husband, Jehoiada, makes the next move. Jehoiada is a priest, and the book of Second Chronicles tells us he was married to Jehoshaphat. When Joash is seven years old, Jehoiada takes the next bold and very risky move. He lets the temple guard in on the big secret. He makes them swear loyalty, and then he shows Joash to them. 
But even then, even with these guards on board, there are still huge risks involved in going public with this. What if the people decide they'd rather stick with Athaliah as their ruler? So the guards have to be armed at all times. They have to be surrounding Joash at all times. And with that protection in place, finally we read down in verse 12, Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him and the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise made by the guards and the people, she went to the people at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king, standing by the pillar as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Then Athaliah tore her robes and cried out, Treason! Treason! Notice, in verse 14, this ceremony takes place in front of all the people of the land. And notice, too, what happens at the ceremony. Verse 12 tells us, Joash is presented with a copy of the covenant. That is a copy of the covenant law, the first five books of our Bible. When God gave that law, he said that the kings of his people were to read it all the days of their life and they were to be careful to follow it all the days of their life. And by giving Joash a copy of that law in front of everybody, Jehoiada is setting the stage for a fresh start here. The kingship has lost its way in recent years. So much so that a Baal worshipper has been in charge. But now in the temple of the Lord, a priest of the Lord crowns a new king whose rule is to be based on the law of the Lord. And all the people give their support. They're all in this together. So much so that Athaliah is executed along with Matan, the priest of Baal, and the people even tear down the temple of Baal. Chapter 11 began with a serious crisis. God's promises and God's people were in great danger. But by the end of the chapter, there has been a fresh start in a time of crisis. It looked like worship of the Lord was going to vanish without trace in Judah. How could it possibly survive Athaliah's persecution? But seven years later, Baal's temple is destroyed. Judah has a new king crowned in the Lord's temple and commissioned to rule according to God's law. Who could have imagined that just seven years ago? But out of the crisis came a new beginning. And surely, as we look at this, there is a powerful encouragement here for us. When we face overwhelming circumstances, when we see what the church is facing in certain parts of the world today, now none of us would ever seek crises and difficulty. We never pray for the church to go through persecution. But when those things come, that is no reason for us to give up hope. 
In our day, just as in the day of Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada, God's plans are well capable of surviving even the worst crisis. And God is still capable of doing great things through his people, even in the worst crisis. So when you find yourself in a tunnel of darkness of some kind, don't imagine you're never going to see the light again. Look to God for courage and wisdom and do what you can for his kingdom. It might not seem to solve anything. Just like Jehoshaphat hiding that baby in a bedroom. How could that lead to any kind of change? Surely if the baby wasn't found that day, it would be found the next week. How could that child survive long enough to become king? And anyway, who would accept him as king in a Baal-worshipping land? So many ifs and buts and maybes. But Jehoshaphat did what she could in the crisis. Her husband Jehoiada did, did what he could in the crisis. And seven years later, the scene in Judah is so, so different. None of us would ever seek out a crisis in our lives. But when a crisis comes, let's remember God's track record. It would be foolish to think that your crisis is too much for him to handle. Look to him for wisdom and courage. Do what you can for his kingdom and see what God makes of it. A year from now, or many years from now, see what he does with it in his own time. Well, if chapter 11 gives us encouragement, chapter 12 gives us a big, fat warning. It shows us a wasted opportunity in a time of calm. If you look down to the end of chapter 11 for a moment, verse 20 says, In the aftermath of Joash's coronation and Athaliah's execution, the city was calm. That's the city of Jerusalem. Last week we came across the word shalom, translated by the word peace in our Bibles. And we saw how it referred to not just the absence of war, but comprehensive well-being, wholeness, security, blessedness. It meant things being the way they should be. But here in chapter 11, a different word is used. The city is calm, meaning simply things are tranquil and quiet. This is a kind of neutral state. There's a level playing field again. Worship of the Lord is not being persecuted anymore, but it is not yet thriving either. This is a time of opportunity, but the opportunity still has to be taken. And so you and I ought to be a little concerned when we read this 
at the start of chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burned incense there. These high places were alternative worship sites. So they weren't necessarily being used to worship other gods. But they were illegitimate because God had said he would choose one place of worship for his people. And that place was the temple in Jerusalem that had been built by Solomon. So we're not being told here that idolatry flourished under Joash. What we're being told is that worship at the temple didn't flourish under Joash. We'll come back to that in a moment. But first, notice again what we're told in verse 2. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Now that seems to suggest when Jehoiada was no longer instructing him, Joash no longer did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So already, without saying too much, the writer of Kings is hinting at something. He's hinting to us that this period of calm in Judah, this opportunity, didn't produce very much that was good. And as we read on, we get the details of that. Look down to verse 4. Joash said to the priests, Collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord. The money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. Let every priest receive the money from one of the treasurers, then use it to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. Now by this time, the temple is well over 100 years old. And considering how it must have been neglected in recent years, particularly, it probably needs quite a bit of repair. And when we remember that Joash lived there for the first seven years of his life, it's not surprising that his first recorded decree as king is to order repairs of the temple. That doesn't mean he gave this order at precisely the age of seven. He may well have been slightly older, but apparently when he started giving orders, this was what he started with. But now look at verse 6. But by the 23rd year of King Joash, the priests still had not repaired the temple. Therefore King Joash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and asked them, why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from your treasures, but hand it over for repairing the temple. The priests agreed that they would not collect any more money from the people and that they would not repair the temple themselves. There are two problems here. First of all, the implication is it was pretty early in Joash's reign that he ordered the repairs. So why on earth does it take till the 23rd year of his reign before he finally notices there ain't any repairs going on? 
I would suggest Joash didn't go near the temple all that often. I'm not the most observant person in the world, but if the church windows were broken and we had employed someone to fix them, I don't think it would take me 23 years to notice if they were still broken every Sunday. So the first problem here is that the king seems to have no urgency about the state of the temple. And the second problem is, for 23 years, the priests have been taking money for doing these non-existent repairs. And when Joash challenges them, it's like a Monty Python sketch. Yes, quite right. No need to keep paying us for that. Maybe hire someone else to do it. And we need to be clear, this money they've been taking for 23 years is on top of their regular pay. The passage will explain that later on. When the money for the repairs is stopped, the regular pay to the priests continues. So if we're being very charitable here to the priests, we would have to call them incredibly incompetent and ineffective. And at worst, we'd have to call this blatant dishonesty and untrustworthiness. And the next verses suggest they have, in fact, been dishonest and untrustworthy. Because Joash sets up a new agreement. The money is now collected in a secure chest. And it's only opened when the royal secretary is there as well. The priests are no longer trusted to deal with the money themselves. Workmen are then hired, and down in verse 15 we're told the foreman acted with complete honesty. That implies the priests had not been completely honest. So here's what has happened. At Joash's coronation, there was a great opportunity in Judah. There was a new calm. And that calm could have been used to rebuild not just the bricks and mortar of the temple, but the worship that took place at the temple. And who better to lead that revival of worship than the king and the priests? But instead, the opportunity is frittered away through apathy on the one hand and through people being more concerned to line their own pockets than to see God honored and glorified. What a terrible waste. And what it shows us is a time of calm can hold just as much danger for us as a time of crisis. It's a different kind of danger, but it is equally hazardous. When our situation is tranquil, our urgency to serve and honor God can so easily just leak away. We can waste our opportunity by never getting around to seeking God's kingdom. And a lack of urgency can slide over time into a lack of conviction about obeying God. A lack of concern about sin. 
And before we know it, we're so spiritually unconcerned and asleep that we're cutting corners when it comes to honesty and trustworthiness and moral purity and concern for the people around us. Very things that are supposed to mark us as God's people and they're just not there anymore. If our lives are in a period of calm, we've got to be just as alert for danger as we are in times of crisis. We've got to be asking God just as fervently for courage and boldness to live for him. We've got to remind ourselves more than ever that sin is serious. And that God is the greatest treasure there is. Infinitely greater than all the other stuff we have dangled in front of us every day. Times of calm can be times of great opportunity for you and me. But having an opportunity is not the same thing as actually using it well. All of us have got to fight against a lazy slide into spiritual apathy and greed and disobedience. Look at the result of Judah's slide into apathy. Down in verse 17. About this time, Hazael king of Aram went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. But Joash king of Judah took all the sacred objects dedicated by his predecessors, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah. And the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace. And he sent them to Hazael, king of Aaron, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. By this time in his life, Joash seems to have forgotten completely. The temple was intended as a place of prayer place to seek God. If he'd remembered that, then when this new crisis came along, he might have gone to the temple to pray. But instead, he treats the temple like an extension of his own bank vault, like an overdraft facility. Instead of going to the temple to pray, Joash goes to raid it so he can pay off his heir. Joash began his reign in a time of calm. It was an opportunity to strengthen Judah's commitment to the Lord and his own reliance on the Lord. But the opportunity was wasted. And the end result of it all is sad, down in verse 20. His officials conspired against him and assassinated him at Beth Milo on the road down to Silla. Second Chronicles deals with this same period of history. And it gives us the details behind this assassination. It tells us that when Jehoiada the priest died, Joash drifted completely from the worship of the Lord. And when Jehoiada's son confronted Joash about his sin, Joash had him killed. 
That's what led to Joash being assassinated by his own officials. You can read the account in 2 Chronicles 24. But here in 2 Kings 12, that's not where the focus is. It's not so much on the tragic end of Joash's life. The focus here is on the wasted opportunity of his life. God continues to be faithful in the midst of all of this. Joash has a son who can succeed him as king. We're told that at the end of verse 12. A descendant of David is still on the throne. But Joash's life was a wasted opportunity. And that wasted opportunity serves as a great big warning to you and me. If things are going well for us, let's not squander the opportunity we have. When I say that, I'm not really thinking here about the need to make our lives frantic with more and more church commitments just piled on. That's not really what I have in mind. And maybe this will challenge some of you to give more time to serve in the church. But I think the challenge here is not just to pile more and more on, but let's be intentional about living our lives for God's glory. That means staying serious about God's word. Living according to his word. That's what Joash's life should have been like. Remember how nicely he was set up for that at his coronation. In front of all the people, Jehoiada presented him with a copy of God's word. The message was clear. That was to be his compass as a ruler. That was to be his guide for life. God's word was to set the whole direction of his life and determine his priorities. But in the years after that, Joash drifted further and further from God's word. So let us stay serious about God's word. Let's stay serious about ordering our whole lives around his word. Making sure our attitudes and priorities and lifestyle are in line with God's word. Making sure our relationships honor what he says in his word. Making sure we take sin as seriously as God's word says we should. Not cutting corners when it comes to honesty, purity, and the words that spill out of our mouths. Let's consider the daily opportunities we have to glorify God and let's make the most of them, whether they're small or big. Two kinds of danger. And who's to say which is the biggest danger for us? The fact is, whether our lives are calm or whether they're in crisis, The only wise and safe thing to do is to keep our eyes on God. To keep asking him for courage and boldness to live for him every single day. 
in a moment, we're all going to do that together. But first, let's take a moment individually to respond to God quietly and personally. All of us know whether we're facing the dangers that come with crisis or the dangers that come with calm. So where we sit, let's just bring our situation to God and ask for his help to honor him in our own specific situation. Father, we thank you that you love us with a deep, deep love. Thank you that you love us enough to give us great encouragement in our difficulties and our suffering, to point us to what you can do, even through the greatest suffering. And we thank you equally that you love us enough to warn us in our ease and our prosperity. To warn us that opportunities can be wasted, lives can be frittered away. But we thank you for that warning and we don't want to be that way. So help us to wake up if we need to wake up. And difficulties help us to persevere with confidence in you. Amen. Well, now let's join together as we commit to live for God and ask for his help to do that.